Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verse, verses 21 through 26. We continue in this great passage that lies on the other side of depravity's dungeon, and we arrive there after a long journey that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. And we walked through that uh, dark dungeon up until chapter 3, verse 20, and finally reaching the exit of the, the dungeon, our little analogy that we're using we saw there's glorious news awaiting on the, the other side for, for sinners. And that was announced to us with the words, but now. The late uh, country preacher B.R. Lakin once said uh, he had been in many churches that was full of billy goats. He could tell them because they were the ones always butting God. Um, but what about this? And but what about that? But when God uses the word but to describe his intervention, it's a glorious sound. Romans chapter 3, but now apart from God, or apart from the, the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Or you might think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all firmly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, our transgressions. He made us alive together in Christ. By, by grace, you have been saved. And so if there's ever a place to, to slow down and take in the scenery, it's at these places where God butts in. One preacher said Romans 3, 21 through 26 is like the, the scenic overlooks on the, on the parkway. It's not a passage that you just drive by and catch a glimpse at 55 miles per hour. It's a passage where you stop the car, you get out, and you take some pictures, which is what we're doing by going through it very slowly. I, I told Tim Moshera earlier this week I plan on preaching verses 21 through 26 in one sermon whenever I, I laid this, this passage out. And I started studying, and I got so excited. I said, there's no way I can do that in, in one sermon. And it's just too much to rush here. So I decided to preach it in two sermons. And and I started studying verse 24, and I, as I read, I got so excited. I said, there's no way that I can do this in, in two sermons. Uh, uh, I, I, just, I just can't preach it in, in, in one. And I kept looking, and, and frankly, I couldn't get past the first word. Being, uh, first words, being justified. And so, I mean, I, I don't know if I can even make it past that this morning. I mean... The word justification or being justified, it, it, it sounds like a, like a lawman TV show um, or something that you would read on a court docket, those of you who are in, in law school. But, but in the Bible, on that little word hangs life and death. Um, do you remember Evangelism Explosion, the old EE program? One of the first jobs I ever had in, in the church I was saved in was a director evangelism. 
I found out later that was because they couldn't get other people to show up on Thursday night door knocking. And so they, you know, the new guy, he's zealous, he'll go do that. And we used the old evangelism explosion program. And sharing Christ is not about a program, it's a person. But, but sometimes that can help you organize your thoughts, especially if you're new. You know, what do you say? How do you even, how do you even start to uh, uh, engage somebody about where they're at with, with God? And one of the probing questions that you were to ask, if you remember in Evangelism Explosion when witnessing to someone was, if you were to die today and stand before God, and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And that question really gets to the heart of the matter. I mean, it just cuts out all of the other stuff about religion or anything else. And it's the, all of the, the answer to that question is, is found in those first two words of verse 24, being, being justified. That, that should be your answer. I mean, that question asks, what are you trusting in for, for, for eternal life? And while you could answer that many ways, there's no more crucial, crucial question. And the answer is a matter of eternity. And this is a, a pass-fail exam. This is not, God doesn't grade on a curve or a sliding scale. Uh, Stephen Cole said there are no makeup exams at the judgment seat either. I mean, you're there and it's pass or fail at that moment. And how God brings the righteousness that you and I need to, to, get, to get into heaven is a watershed doctrine. I mean, it's the fundamental of the faith. I mean, I can hardly think of a more significant doctrine. Because the Bible says we're all unrighteous, and if we, we need righteousness to enter into heaven, then, then how we get that is of paramount importance. And, and the basis of our hope of heaven is something that every person must be crystal clear on. I mean... If you place your hope of eternal life in the wrong thing, when you stand before God, uh, you'll not get there. You'll not get into heaven. You'll be doomed. And it's amazing that the answers I got whenever I would, when I would ask that question to people, and, and still do, get, get interesting answers, even from people who have been in church or claim to be in church or have read significant portions of, of the Bible, answers to why should God let you in his heaven, things like, well, I, I lived a good life, or I've done the best that I could do, or I'm basically a good person. I've never tried to hurt anyone. You could probably add to that list, but, but those are the common ones. And of course, getting into heaven is not answering a question correctly. You must be born again. Your sins must be forgiven. You, you must be reconciled to God, but, but you also must be clear on how that happens. And that's the heart of what Paul deals with today in verse 24. I mean, the Bible teaches that all human beings are fallen and sinful under the curse of God and incapable of saving ourselves from God's righteous wrath. But God, on the basis of life and death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ alone grants sinners a judicial pardon or a justification. And that's received solely through faith. That's what salvation by faith alone asserts. It's God's pardon for guilty sinners is granted and received through believing. And when you think about that, you think, that's it? I mean, really? Believing? I mean, going from eternal damnation to eternal joy hinges upon simply believing or 
having faith or trust, excluding all of my works. It, it doesn't matter what I do or what I, what I don't do, knowing that I can never do enough and I always fall short. And the answer is yes. That's exactly what it hangs on. The Shorter Baptist Catechism of 1813 says this about our little word. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That truth is the great difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the primary argument of the New Testament. It's the argument that Paul's making in, in the letter to the Romans. And it's the, the connecting thread that holds the, the entire Old and New Testament, all the scriptures together. It's the, it's the doctrine on which Christianity stands or, or falls. I mean, if, a, if the gospel is a wheel, faith alone is the hub. If Christ is the bread we need, then faith is the arm that, that brings it to our mouths. Uh, if Christ's righteousness is the credit that we need, then faith is the, is the card that gives us access. If, if forgiveness is the balm for our souls, then faith is the, is the can opener that opens the container. It's, if salvation is the medicine for our sin-sick souls, then faith is the dropper that carries it to our, our lips. Faith is the instrument that connects a sinner to God's provision in Christ. And what God does for us when we exercise that faith is exactly what Paul is going to define for us next. What he does is he justifies us. And for weeks we've looked at our fallenness and none righteous and all have sinned and possess universal guilt. We've been to the courtroom, the evidence presented, our mouths were closed, the verdict was read in verse 19, all the world is guilty before God. And with those words of condemnation, we expect judgment and we walk outside and what we're offered is, is justification. Apart from the law, available to all, based on faith alone, righteousness that we can't generate ourselves a righteousness that is gifted to us, that comes from outside of us, a righteousness that provides full redemption, and now a righteousness that justifies us, meaning it provides an utterly different verdict than the one we deserve and the one we currently have. And when you put all the passage together, there's three ways God's righteousness is revealed in the coming and cross of Jesus. And we're working through this. The first way is it's publicized in the coming of Christ. We cover that in verse 21 and 22. The second is it's provided through the person of Christ. Verse 22b and 24 are the passage that we'll finish up today or start finishing up today. It's proven then through the cross of Christ. God's righteousness is proven in verses 25 and 26. We said the first way is it's publicized. Look, if you would, at verse 21. Just get the on-ramp here. Verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And the subject matter is very clear. 
The righteousness of God. That's repeated twice. That's what we're talking about. This is a continuation of chapter 1. Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And now he's revealing details about that, picking back up that theme. And now he describes it. It's a righteousness that comes apart from the law. Righteousness promised and fulfilled in Christ. That righteousness is through faith. Meaning faith is the vehicle. That's how you gain it. In fact, it has to be because it's God's righteousness. And that is available to to every person. And so now he starts talking about it being provided. So look at verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction. In verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the second way is it's provided in the cross of Jesus. All need it from God. All need what God is providing and all gain it. Only one way, through a gracious gift. And he unpacks this gracious gift. In verse 23, so he says there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile in judgment. We'll all be judged without partiality. And then there's no distinction in the way that God's righteousness comes to us, uh, which is by grace. And that's the solution offered to, to Jew and Gentiles without distinction. We're in the same predicament and we are rescued the same way. And he starts by elaborating on that. It's his further explanation of his point. There's no distinction. In judgment and in salvation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's explaining that. All people, Jew and Gentile, fail to fulfill their purpose in creation, which is to image God, to glorify God, to put Him on display. We're made in God's image and then the fall marred that. We're unable to do that now. Because of sin, we fail to do that. That's why restoring this image won't be complete until you're in heaven. And God promises and provides a correction to that, a salvation for that in, by His grace alone. Look, look at you at verse 24. Here's all gain righteousness as a gracious gift. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I mean, it is as if Paul picked his words so carefully that he could pack as much in as possible. Have you ever went to uh, overseas and you have 50 pounds to fit in the suitcase and you have 100 pounds and you're sitting on it and you're cranking it down and you're vacuum packing and you're do- that's what Paul's doing in this verse. There's so much here. He starts with our law word. He says being justified. It, it's a word that I've told you before has the same root as the word righteous or righteousness. And we've already been talking about this word. We've been talking about righteousness. And that was in a, in a noun form, the righteousness of God. But now the, the word is in a verbal form or a participle to be exact. Being justified. It's an action. You can hear something's happening here. It's not a statement. The righteousness of God. Now you're being justified. Something's happening. And the term means a right standing before the bar of justice. It was a judicial declaration. So you're right to think of it as a, as a law term. It's a, it was a verdict given in a trial. It, it means to be pronounced just, meaning a right status in, in this case, be, before God. One of the things that you have to describe, because Paul packed so much of stuff in here, is what does verse 24 go with? I mean, I know it comes after verse 23, uh, verse 23 but, but, but is, that, is it connected to verse 23 or... 
Or did Paul go off on a little rabbit trail here talking about there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he picks back up where he left off at the end of verse, verse 22. I mean, the passage is long. It's phrase after phrase. Paul got so, preci- uh, so excited. He's so precise. I mean, in other words, is Paul saying all have sinned, but now all are justified by his free grace? Uh, Or is that no distinction, all have sinned, like an extra explanation? And now in verse 24, he picks up where he left off with even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, being justified as a gift by His grace. Grammatically, it's, it's better to see it as a counterpart to the there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all are being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But he's also adding to what he's saying about this righteousness of God, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, all being justified. He goes on about this righteousness of God and it comes to everyone the same way that judgment comes to everyone who sinned. So Paul says this way of righteousness brings justification. And that's a gift of grace. It's not something earned. He'll even go in the rest of the chapter and say, where's boasting then? There's no boasting if if you're justified by God's grace. But even more important than where does this verse fit, is what does being justified mean? I mean, it's a law word, it's being declared righteous. I mean, we know it has something to do with the judge. God's the judge declaring us righteous, but, but how does he do that? On what basis does he do that? How does God accomplish that? I mean, are we made righteous like God, or are we <clears throat> declared righteous by God? And you may think that's a really small matter. I'll let the theologians wrestle with, with that. Is made righteous really that much different from being declared righteous? Oh, oh I, I cannot describe to you how different that is. You may think that's a small matter, but I am telling you on those little words, made or declared, you're either made righteous or you're declared righteous at the moment of salvation. On those little words hangs all of the gospel. I mean, that, 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 those little words is what brought about the Protestant Reformation. It's the difference between Catholicism and a biblical gospel. They're protesting that we're not made righteous. We're, we're declared righteous. I mean, it's the bridge between heaven and hell. I mean, does God place His righteousness in us and then ask us to cooperate with Him to keep it? Does God kind of put the the train on the tracks, and then we've got to add uh, wood and coal to the furnace, and that keeps us propelling down the tracks to our heavenly destination. And then at the end of the days, he looks at us and evaluates and then declares us just. Is that the way it works? Is that what Paul's saying here? Or does God declare us as justified on the merits of Christ at the moment we believe? You are justified at the moment that you believe, even though you're still sinners, even though you have a record that says you're unrighteous. 
And he does that declaration by our faith in Jesus and in what he has done. I mean, we know we need righteous. We know we need righteousness. There's none righteous. We know we can't get it by the works of the law, the Mosaic law. No flesh will be justified in God's sight by the law. We know it is God's righteousness that we need, not our own. And we know it comes to us by faith, on the basis of faith. But is it faith alone? It does that finish the verdict. Is the verdict rendered by God when you believe upon Jesus Christ? Or is the verdict kind of started there and delayed until you stand before Him? The verdict right now. So that from that point forward, you live without any condemnation before God. Or simply, once we believe upon Jesus for our righteousness, do we add to that? Or was His righteousness enough? That's the real question you must answer. And I declare to you this morning, (laughs) before Almighty God and on the basis of His Word, if there is any mixture of your righteousness or my righteousness or merit to your justification, we are damned. And we have no gospel at all. That's how serious this one little word is. And it's exactly what the word uh, implies. Justification by, by faith alone is at times oversimplified as just as though I never sinned. Have you ever heard it put like that? That's how it was defined to me. Justification, the way you remember it, is just as though I, I never sinned. And, but it is way more than that. I mean, in spiritual matters, justification is the declaration of a sinner as righteous before God, even though in themselves we are unrighteous, and that declaration is by judicial act based solely on the merits of Christ that comes to us by faith without any mixture or need of good works. And that happens at the moment. At the moment that you believe upon Jesus Christ. That righteousness is then imputed. It's credited to your account. It's not infused in you. It's imputed to you. And that righteousness is alien. It comes from outside of you. It's passive, meaning you have nothing to do with it. And it's forensic. It's a judicial standing. You're not made righteous. You're declared righteous. But that's not what everyone teaches. Some have it very, very wrong. Catholicism, Mormonism, and Orthodox Church teaches to justify means to be made righteous by God through the acts of the sacraments or your participation in some ritual rather than being declared righteous by God as a verdict. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, stated, quote, One of the most pernicious doctrines ever advocated by man is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which has entered into the hearts of millions since the days of the so-called Reformation. Restoration of All Things, page 192. Roman Catholicism, which you're probably more familiar with, teaches there are seven sacraments that are a necessary part of justification and therefore salvation. I was reminded of that yesterday. We had a new members class and the elders give their testimony and listening to Rich's testimony again, coming out of Catholicism. And you probably are aware of that. You've seen it on TV, you know, the, the guy with the, the collar or the... The nuns, 
You go into the booth. There's seven sacraments, actually, not just the one where you go into the booth and make confession. There's baptism. There's confirmation. There's mass or Eucharist. There's penance, confession. There's anointing of the sick. There's holy orders. And then there's matrimony. There, there are seven sacraments. And, and each of those might have multiple requirements. For instance, penance or confession has four components. There's contrition. You've got to be sorry. There's confession. After you're contrite, then you go confess it to a priest who hears the confession. And then there's absolution, where the priest says, I absolve you. And then there's satisfaction or penance. Go say ten Hail Marys or whatever it is that you, you need to do to show that you are serious. In Roman Catholic teaching, the sacraments of the Catholic Church are a means of grace. You, you receive it. They're not a symbol. They're a means of grace. You participate and you get grace. And as you participate, then merit is added. The Catholic Church sees itself like a giant funnel where the grace of God is exclusively dumped into that funnel. The funnel. There's no salvation outside of the Catholic Church according to Catholic teaching. There's no salvation outside of, of Rome. So we all go to hell outside of the, the Catholic Church, and even more so for believing in salvation by faith alone. And there's no saving grace outside of the sacraments. They're God's way of grace to the Catholic faithful. And when we went through Luther, I told you the priest is like God's, God's barista. He, he administers the Mass. He administers baptism. He administers confession. You go to the sacrament and he makes your drink for you or whatever it is, your coffee. And without the, without the church, you have no access to the grace of God. And without the sacrament, you have no means to receive that grace. And without the priest, you have no mediator to stand between you and God and minister it to you. So Catholics believe that faith is required for salvation. Don't say Catholics believe in salvation by works. They'll rebuke you, and you can, rightly so, they'll go to Catholic dogma and say, right here, faith is required for salvation. What they don't believe is it's faith alone. And what they don't believe is that the moment of that exercising of faith, the verdict of justified is granted to you who believe. And so faith is required in addition to the sacraments, and they're required. Listen to Catholic teaching on the sacraments I'm quoting now from Catholic Dogma. Though not every individual receives every sacrament, the sacraments, those seven that I mentioned to you, as a whole are seen as a necessary means of salvation for the faithful, conferring each sacrament's particular grace. Instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, there's the funnel, they're efficacious signs of grace perceptible to the senses, through them divine life is bestowed upon us. What they also do not believe is that a person is declared righteous by God at the moment of faith in the merits of Christ. They believe a person becomes righteous through a process. There are three parts to it. There's initial justification... Then there's final justification when you stand before God, and in the middle you, it's where you cooperate, like a de facto progressive justification. Roman Catholic theology holds that God's righteousness is infused into the sinner 
when they partake in the sacrament of baptism. Baptism washes away your original sin and then God's righteousness is infused in you at that, at that moment. And that's the entrance to the Christian life. And at that moment, when that baby is baptized, then they're justified before God. They're righteous before God because they have God's righteousness. But then, of course, you don't stay that way because of your sin. Uh, Joel James illustrated it like this. It's like at that moment of baptism, you, you start at the pinnacle of the mountain, the top of the mountain, which is where you need to be, God's, God's righteousness. And then, and then immediately after that, you're not there long. You start to slide down the, the slope of, of the mountain. And so your whole life is spent trying not to slide downhill. And when you realize you, you are, that the rest of your life tried, uh, spent trying to claw your way back to the top where you stand Justified before God. And so every time you sin, you lose your standing of justification in that system. And you must regain that standing through, through the means that the church offers, which is the sacraments, being the, sacraments of, the sacrament of penance. And so by participating in the sacrament, you, your standing can be restored that standing that you had at, at, at baptism, but, but not perfectly, mind you, because sin leaves a stain, of course. And so then by participating in the, that sacrament and the rest, then you, you gain merit, which is then added to your account. And then, of course, you sin again, though, and so you repeat the process. And, and who knows whether you participated in the sacraments, uh, sacraments enough. So there's, you, who knows whether there's enough merit to overcome the, the sin. And who knows whether you're able to climb back to the top of the mountain or not. And that's what you do your whole life. You sin and you do penance. You, you're contrite and you confess to a priest. He absolves you and you show you're serious like by giving or lighting candles or, or praying. And, and you're restored, but maybe not all the way. And, and then you sin and you do penance and you're restored, but... But you're never fully right with, with God because you have to wait on that final justification that happens at the very end to see whether you'll be declared just. The, the judicial verdict happens at the end when you stand before God. That's why sincere Catholics like Martin Luther before he was converted are vigilant about the Mass and the relics and the sacraments. I mean... And sadly, it's why most of them have no assurance of heaven at all. I mean, how could you ever know in that system? In their religion, you, you continue to receive God's grace, but you, but you never arrive. But don't be too hard on them, because that's how some of you live in practice, even though you know that it's the wrong thing to believe. You know it's salvation by by faith alone in Jesus, but you live like it's based on you. You're working and you're keeping and you're striving. If you did spiritual, uh, spiritualancestry.com, you would find your part Galatian having be, begun in the spirit. You think you're perfected by the works of the flesh. You started your Christian life by, by grace. You knew at one point there was no way you could save yourself. Only the grace of God could save me. And you cried out to Christ, but then somewhere along the line, having begun that way, you begin to think you're perfected in the, in the flesh. And so you start working and you start striving. You start adding to the gospel and to the word, whatever it might be, and you're never at peace. Are you listening? And Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is all. He is your peace. Stop striving. If you have believed upon Him at that moment, you have been declared righteous, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the fact that that's not the case in Catholicism is also the reason for purgatory. It's the condition or process, a place of purification or temporary punishment where the souls of those who die in this state of grace, trying to get back up to the mountain, sliding back down to the mountain, but you're really trying. You go to purgatory to be made ready for heaven. So in addition to believing in heaven and hell, Roman Catholicism teaches this intermediate state before being admitted to heaven. So some souls are not free from sin enough to get into heaven, but they're not bad enough to go to hell, and so they must first endure purgatory, the state of purification, purgatory, where you achieve holiness necessary to enter into heaven. And then once all of that takes place, there's a final judgment after purgatory. Are you there 10 years? Are you there 100 years? Are you there a million years? You don't know. I don't know. And then after you get out of purgatory, whenever that happens, you where you stand before Almighty God, then your individual works will be evaluated and those who are righteous will be shown to be so. God started it, you've cooperated, and then based on your faith and the merit that you've gained, God gives you a final justification and I tell you that is no gospel at all. That is not good news. That's bad news. That's horrible news because you'll never gain enough merit to cleanse your soul, if it's added to Christ. And you have no assurance of God's acceptance until you stand before Him. R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, illustrated it this way. One of his friends opened for him at a conference, and um, this is how he opened. R.C. is getting ready to preach after him, so this guy is the pulpit before Sproul. And R.C. said... The guy opened and said, last night I had a dream about R.C. He said, I went to heaven, I dreamed I went to heaven, and I stood at the gate, uh, was met there by St. Peter and some angels, and um, St. Peter recognized me, the man said, which I was very thankful for, (laughs) and he says, yep, I have your name right down here, Um, but before you're able to go in, you have to do something. He said, you see that ladder over there, and the man said he looked over to his right and there was this, this ladder reaching into, into heaven and he went up as far as he could see into the clouds and went completely out of sight. St. Peter says to him, before you can come in, I need you to climb that ladder and as you do, I want you to put a mark of chalk on every rung of that ladder for every sin that you've committed. One sin, one rung. And then the angel comes out from behind St. Peter. He said with this giant piece of chalk about the size of a log. He said it was so heavy I could could barely carry it. And so off I went, started climbing the ladder with this big giant piece of chalk. And I got to the first rung and bent down and scratch. I put a mark on it. And then the second one, scratch the second, and then a third, and... I just kept climbing, higher and higher, every rung, putting, putting a mark. I got so high I couldn't see the ground. 
And then I looked up and the ladder just continued going out, out of sight. And I, and I noticed after marking all day, the chalk had not gotten one ounce smaller. I'm still carrying this, this log on my, on my shoulder. And then I heard something above me, on the, the ladder above me. And as I looked up, it was R.C. Sproul coming down the ladder for more chalk. (laughs) Can you imagine if that's how it worked? God puts you on the ladder. You you couldn't get on the ladder unless God puts you there, but, but then you have to do something to climb. I mean, how many rungs would you have to climb and... How many times would you have to come down for more chalk? There's not enough chalk in the world to mark all of my sins. There's not, I'm telling you. And that's exactly the situation that you are in if any of your righteousness is not from Christ alone. If our deeds are added to the Lord's, we are without hope. My sins are not marked by chalk. They're marked out by the blood of the Lamb. My sins are not noted when I stand before God and weigh. They've been washed away. And so have yours. And if what Jesus said from the cross is true, it's finished, it's accomplished. And if what the writer of Hebrews says is true, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And if what Paul says in this passage is true, that we're declared righteous by God on the basis of faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, then we are as sure of heaven as we are sitting here today. In fact, that's exactly what John says in the Gospels in John three thirty six, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And, and pay attention. He who believes in the Son, this is John three thirty six. Nicodemus. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him or remains. Notice the present tense. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He has it now. You see, the Bible teaches something altogether different than Catholicism or Mormonism or or any other thing that says it's God plus you. It teaches salvation is full and final. Justification brings that full and final declaration on the basis of, of of faith. Look at our passage again, verse 21. But now, apart from the, the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe being justified, verse 24, as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Our word is all over this passage. It's all over this book. The Greek word justification It's built on the word right or righteousness. So we've already been talking about it. 
Every time the word righteousness has been used, it was, it was part of our torch in chapter 1. The righteousness of God is being revealed, just like the wrath of God is being revealed. It's a righteousness that's from faith to faith. It's always been this way in the Old Testament. It's always that God would be the one who would provide the righteousness. It's used in our passage. It's already been used in our passage already in verse 21. A righteousness apart from the law. Verse 22, even a righteousness from God by faith. Remember the word righteousness is a noun and justify is, is a verb. And so in verse 24, he, he applies the word. And that's a good way to understand the difference. The righteousness of God is something that we need. And to, to justify means that God's applied it and the verdict is justified. That's the result. You are justified. And God is making a declaration about us as the judge of the universe. That's different from the declaration that we already have. And that's based on His own righteousness. But this amazing grace is not over then. I mean, Paul's going to go on. And he's going to say this justification comes to us as, as a gift by grace. It comes in redemption or through redemption where Jesus Christ is the mercy seat or acts like the mercy seat. He propitiates us to God. He satisfies God. He, he, he pays a ransom in His own blood. I mean, this is not like just getting out of a, a ticket in a traffic court where you plead no contest and you just don't get the consequences. I mean, or the charge being thrown out because the, the police officer doesn't show up. You, you, have a, you have a new record altogether. You're not just simply not guilty. You now have the verdict of just. And that verdict is not your own, it's Christ. You don't only lose the negative consequences of the sin that you committed, but you gain the positive benefits of that declaration as well, which is what Paul will go on to, to describe for us. I mean, believing upon Jesus Christ changes our judicial standing before God. And even more amazing, it does that right now. And at the moment of faith, rather than waiting until the, the end of judgment comes. I mean, in the gospel, God declares you righteous and then treat you as if you're righteous. Like, I mean, if He declares you righteous now, then how does God look at you in some in-between state? No, He now looks at you completely different as He did before. He now treats you as if you're righteous. And the amazing thing is we know we're not. You're no longer His enemy, you're His friend. You're no longer a sinner waiting for God to see if you've done enough there is therefore now no condemnation. You have peace with God at that moment? In Romans 5, you don't gain peace with God. I mean, you may struggle with assurance, but at that moment, you're standing of peace. You're at peace with God. God's at peace with you is a better way to say that. He's no longer your enemy. You gained every spiritual blessing and treasure in Christ Jesus at that moment that you believe, at that moment of faith. Ephesians 1, another packed run-on sentence. You have the promise of the Holy Spirit at that moment. You're sealed with Christ in the heavenlies. You'll be raised with Christ one day. You're as sure 
of a resurrection into heaven as if you were already there. You're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You will reign beside Him one day. I mean, I could go on and on. Okay, I will. You're free from sin and death. The bondage that, that had a death grip on you, the chains that you could not break free, the will that was in bondage that didn't want God and still wanted your sin, even though you knew from morality of the stamp of God on you, you knew it was wrong, but you just couldn't stop. That Those chains are broken, they're gone. You now have an ability that you didn't have before. At the moment of salvation, you're called sons of God. You no longer have a natural mind. You have the mind of Christ. Every time I think of that, I think of Brett Edwards who said at my ordination, his father told him whenever he told him he was leaving work and going into the ministry, his dad said, have you lost your mind? And, and he said, yes, I have, and I've gained the mind of Christ. You'll rise from the dead one day. You have a home in heaven, and you will never, ever, 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 ever be separated from the love of God in Jesus Christ ever again at the moment in which you believe. That's why just as though I never sinned is insufficient, isn't it? It only deals with the removal of the negative. But there's so much more. You gain, you gain Christ's record and all of His rewards I mean, what does Jesus get or deserve? Whatever that is, is what you get as well. I, I mean, apart from His rightful praise for who He is and His work and those types of things. But you'll even receive praise for your work now on His behalf. And He has ordained good works for you to do. And now that you're declared righteous because of Him, I mean, how huge is that? Uh, anyone need sins forgiven? I do. <laughs> God does that for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Then He goes far and exceedingly beyond that. He calls us saints of God now. I mean, anyone feel like a saint in here? Anyone look at your life and you say, I'm no saint. No, you're not. Anyone feel like you deserve that? No, that title? No, you don't. But you now have it by declaration of God on the basis of Christ because you have laid hold of Him by faith and His benefits have been brought to your account. You don't deserve it, but Jesus does. And because we believed upon Him, we are treated like Him. Justification is the right standing before God when you had the wrong one. It's the opposite of condemnation. Doug Moo said this, I'm quoting, Justify is a legal reality of the utmost significance. It means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against a person because of his or her sins. And here's a key. This judicial verdict, for which one had to wait until the last judgment according to Jewish theology, uh, Jewish theology is according to Paul rendered at the moment a person believes. This is what the coming of Christ has brought. This is the promise that's fulfilled. It's not a new way of salvation, not saved by law and now by, by grace. It's always been by grace through faith in the Old Testament. But the coming of Christ has brought the declaration of righteousness now. 
in His work. The eschatological act of justification, the ultimate verdict regarding a person standing before God is brought back into our present reality, Doug Moo. That's why there is no longer any need for a sacrifice. That's how Jesus fulfilled the law. That's why the blood of bulls and goats intended to remind the Jews of their need is finished and there is no more temple. Because God has cleansed our conscience of dead works so that we can truly serve the living God in Hebrews 9. Or Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. For we're called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but now through love serve one another, be enslaved to one another. Paul in Galatians says you were, you were set free from God plus you. Now he set you free from all of those ceremonial trappings of the law that were there to point you to Christ because Christ has come and now you've been freed from all of that so you can, you can truly serve. Do you want to be free? And come to Jesus Christ. Come to Him by faith alone, believing in His name, meaning all that He is and all that He's done, and God through Him will justify you. He will declare you justified right now. And in that freedom, then you can serve Him. Because if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And that's good news, isn't it? Oh, such good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, how clear it is. And I look at my own heart and even error that sometimes has crept in, natural ways of thinking I've added to your word. There's nothing more natural, Lord, than thinking we need you, but you need us. It's 99 you, but one me. And you just obliterate that, Lord, because salvation is 100% in you. And you offer that freely. And all need it. And so all will come the same way. What a gospel! In the moment in which we believe upon Jesus Christ and what He has done, we believe in acknowledging what you say about us, our sins, and turning from ourselves to you, turning to Jesus. In that moment, we believe upon Him. Everything changes. We're no longer condemned. We're, we're justified. And now in that freedom, we get to go forth. Our chains are gone and we follow you. We we serve you. We give our lives to you. And we have no fear whatsoever of death or what the world will do or anything else because we already possess it. We're just waiting to leave this body to be in your presence. But while we're in this body, we want to be pleasing to you. So, Father, I pray even this morning, anyone in here who has never laid hold of this, this Christ is maybe still trying to to add to it. Uh, maybe today you, you've turned the light bulb on. I pray today that they just believe. And I pray for any Christian here this morning, Lord, that knows that is true, but, but they have 
they're acting like a Catholic. They, they, they've slid down the hill and they know they've slid down the hill and they're trying to claw themselves back up. I pray, Lord, that they get off the mountain upon the bedrock of Christ. When we hit rock bottom, we're still on the rock. And that rock is Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you, Lord. I pray you do all of this. Your son might get glory in his name. Amen. You stand, let's sing, old church arise. Let's sing about the gospel. Come see the cross where love and mercy meet as the Son of God is stricken. Then see his foes lie crushed beneath his feet for the conqueror has risen. And as the stone is rolled away And Christ emerges from the grave This victory march continues till the day Every eye and heart shall see Amen, amen. You're sitting here and you're saying, I, I've done that, I believed. What, what do I do now? Well, what you do now is you come back tonight and you listen and you learn about the doctrine of God and then you, you pick up a Bible and you open it and you start reading it and then you find another believer and you say, I believed upon this, help me. And then you come back next Sunday morning and next Sunday night and then you keep doing that and as you do that it becomes clearer and clearer and, and then at some point you... You're baptized, and then, then the journey even gets sweeter. You get to publicly proclaim to everybody of what God did for you, particularly. And then you come into this church, and you, you, you learn all things whatsoever He's commanded you, and you grow, and then you start telling other people about that. You'll do that even before that, just like the woman at the well. Come see the man who showed me everything. I don't know a whole lot, but I know this. He saved me, and... And then you just keep doing that and you keep doing that until you see him face to face in heaven. Um, and I hope that you will. Lord, we love you. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.